Good morning. So we're continuing in Chronicles and talking about Jehoshaphat this morning. Uh, just one other comment about the temple last night is I think Chronicles is not so much land theology, but temple theology. It's not so much land theology, but temple theology. And we're going to, as we look at this morning, we'll pick up Jehoshaphat, but then Hezekiah in the next section. And Hezekiah, that might be a little bit too loud, is it? Is it a bit loud? No? Okay, it feels loud here. <laughs> King Hezekiah is going to call northerners to come and be part of Passover. And uh, that's also going to pick up the end of the book of Chronicles where there's a call to return to Jerusalem. But I think the call to return to Jerusalem is not so much a call in terms of land theology, but it's a call to the presence of God because it is he's the... And so we're going to see when we come to King Hezekiah when they return that they have to humble themselves. And so there's repentance. So it's also a call to repentance. So big picture is where that... that temple that we looked at last night and the prayer, it's because the presence of God is at the center of their life as a community. And so I think that's the emphasis on the musicians and the worship, and it's all temple theology throughout the book, ultimately because of the presence of God with his people. Uh, so the story we pick up with King Jehoshaphat, and I am looking at Second Chronicles, chapters 17 to 20. Now, I want to talk about Jehoshaphat 1 because he's one of my favorite kings. And, but the other reason is in Kings, there's just one chapter, if even that, less than that, on Jehoshaphat. But there's many, many more stories in Chronicles, and that gets us into the heartbeat of the theology of Chronicles. So that's why it's another good reason. And the same thing with King Hezekiah. A lot of the reforms that we're going to look, look at, they're not in Kings. And so that helps us to lean into the book in particular that we're in. Uh, so let's just start with Second Chronicles chapter 17, Jehoshaphat, his son, became king, and we have uh, the reign of King Asa beforehand that's set in the context. Uh, king Asa starts off as a great king, and, but he doesn't finish so well. Another, if you're preaching through Chronicles, which I hope some of you are going to preach through Chronicles, and the commentary that I'm writing, I'm submitting it in this summer, the Lord willing, this summer, and the deadline is May, which is soon approaching. <laughs> Don't tell Tramper, okay. <laughs> uh, so... End of, um, end of summer, but I, I, it is Ondervan's story of God I've mentioned already. It is placing the book within the larger redemptive narrative, which is why I was interested in it, but it is also 40% application in the commentary, 60%, and I, I'm not, I, I, I talk about the theology and the meaning. I've got some good word studies, but I'm thinking for people who are preaching to be able to use it for preaching and for teaching. So that's my goal for, for the series. So yes, there's not too many Chronicles commentaries that are for preaching, let me tell you. 
<laughs> I've said to a couple of people, you know, you can read some, Japheth, for example, has written, actually, it's really the standard thick volume, but you start reading it, and I often think to myself, gee, I used to like Chronicles before I started reading this. So I don't want to scare people off, and um, a great way to preach through Chronicles is just to hit some of the major kings with lots of stories. I think one of the ways to introduce people in churches to Old Testament, which I do when I'm doing my casket, is the stories. Tell the, tell the stories and people go, oh, I didn't know. And it invites them into the stories to want to go back and read it. So great stories in, um, about the king. So running through the kings, a good uh, friend of mine, Tom Petter, who is an Old Testament professor at Gordon-Conwell, he's, the, the, he's part-time doing that now. He's the senior pastor of Trinitarian Congregational Church. And I mention it because he's just done a series that is available online on finishing well. That's how, what he did with going through. So there's lots of rich material to think through for, uh, for Chronicles, great stories. Uh, but Asa does not finish well. Even at the end of his life, a little minor thing like he became diseased in his feet. And his disease was severe, yet even in his disease, he did not seek the Lord. So Asa's another great story. Um, and especially one of the key verses in that is, for the eyes of the Lord move to and fro throughout the earth, that he may strongly support those whose heart is completely his. You have acted foolishly in this indeed. From now on, you will surely have wars. So that's Asa, but a great promise there as well. So now picking up uh, Jehoshaphat in chapter 17. First thing Jehoshaphat does is fortify uh, the cities of Judah. And as we look at the kings, there is not a cookie-cutter formula for each king in the leadership position that they're in. When we come to King Hezekiah, the first thing he's going to do is cleanse the temple. He's got to get rid of some stuff before they can even do business there. And so Jehoshaphat is going to start with fortifying the kingdom, and we find out that uh, Verse 3, the Lord was with Jehoshaphat because he followed the example of his father's earlier days, David, and he did not seek the Baals, but sought the God of his father. I'm going to come back to that verse, but here you've got seeking God. Remember, we've seen that that's one of the key terms, seeking God, following God's commandments here. And it is important to notice the context because he says he's not following Baal and that's going on with Ahab in the north. We're going to find that out soon. With Ahab in the northern king, he's, he's set up Baal worship. Remember his wife Jezebel. Um, yeah. His wife Jezebel and Baal worship and so we're going to pick up the context of Baal worship. So early in his reign, he's not following, worshipping Baal, and he's not following the northern king. And so we find that God is establishing his kingdom in verse 5. So the Lord established his kingdom in his control, and all Judah brought tribute to Jehoshaphat, and he had great riches and honor. Verse 6, he took pride in the way of the Lord and again removed the high places. So, first of all, we see fortifying the kingdom. This is going to be really important in the chapter 20 because this guy is a military guy. 
And we're going to see the transformation of a military guy to a man of prayer. And something's going to happen in between that shapes him. So he's a military guy. He's going to fortification. And there's also going to be an emphasis on his army that's coming up in a moment. So military, God's with him. There's a blessing upon him. Notice then in verse 9, we've got the reference to the Levites and the priests. Here they turn up again. And in verse 9, they taught in Judah the book of the law of the Lord who was with them. And they went throughout all the cities of Judah and taught among the peoples. I just want you, this is actually unusual that Jehoshaphat is appointing the Levites and it says this. And I just want to underscore in terms of his leadership that he is using his leadership to establish good teaching for the word of God. Can I hear an amen? Amen. And in fact, the law of God is really important in Chronicles. We've talked about the fact that the chronicler is going back to their earlier history and the, the word of God is absolutely central to the book. The law of God is used four times in Chronicles. It says the book of the law or the scroll. We also have the law by the hand of Moses, 2 Chronicles 34 verse 14. That raises all kinds of questions about authorship of the Torah. By the hand of Moses, that expression is also used in Nehemiah. And by the hand of Moses, of course, is going way back to Exodus chapter 34, Leviticus, Numbers, all over the Pentateuch. So, priority for the word of God and what happens as a result. Now, the dread or the fear of the Lord was on all the kingdoms of the lands which were around Judah. So, teaching the word of God, and he's doing it throughout the kingdoms, want to encourage us as we're thinking about our time together, the importance of teaching the word of God. And I know that you know this, and you believe it, which I love about you, um, United, uh, these are some statistics, um, United Kingdom Bible Society, a number of years ago, surveyed British parents, 30% said they um, don't know that Adam and Eve are in the Bible, 27% think Superman either is or might be a biblical story, one in three believes Harry Potter is or might be a biblical story, 54% said Hunger Games is or might be a story in the Bible. Barna did some studies in the US with some high school seniors. Over 50% they thought that Sodom and Gomorrah were husband and wife. <laughs> I don't know. That's one of my favorite. Although the other one is thinking that Joan of Arc was um, Noah's wife. Uh, Kenneth Briggs wrote the invisible bestseller. Uh, if you read it, he says in America, Bible sales are on the all-time high. I mean, it's, it's, it's worth reading. He surveyed around the country. He's got some it's staggering statistics in terms of Bible sales. And of course, you have all the different kinds of Bibles, the mum's Bibles, the dad's Bibles, the college student Bibles, the military Bibles... Carol's Bible. 
the, um, you know, the, uh, the green Bible, you know, all the land verses are all in green and you can go buy green tea, <laughs> Bible verses. <laughs> but what he said is people are not reading it. And it's becoming like um, something you want to give as a gift, but you don't read it. Uh, the time of Manasseh is one of the worst times, and it's no surprise that the law of God is lost for a season. And there may well be a connection. So here you have Jehoshaphat ensuring that God's word is taught, and we have the Levites doing this, which we've talked about, the fact that the Levites are also the worship leaders, and so the centrality of the word of God. So then we have verse 12. Jehoshaphat grew greater and greater, and he built fortresses and store cities in Judah, and he had large supplies in the cities, valiant warriors and men in Jerusalem. And then it gives his army that is stationed in Jerusalem. Warriors. So he's got his primary standing army that is stationed in Jerusalem. Uh, just a quick comment about the numbers here. Uh, just as a sidebar, there has been some work done on numbers in the Old Testament. Uh, I think in the Asa, Asa account, it talks about when the Ethiopians come up against and it's got like there are um, a million men. So just a quick comment about numbers here. The term for a thousand is LF in Hebrew. And what a number of scholars have looked at, and it's, it's, not, it's a puzzle, but it's not fully solved. But they have looked at the term LF that's used with numbers, and often it's military. And a number of scholars have said, instead of seeing LF being literal 1,000, that it may well be a military battalion. And so then scholars kind of reconfigure some of the numbers, and I do think there's something to that. So I mentioned that here uh, in terms of some of the numbers, and it comes up later as well. I think there are, there are other ways, I think, to be looking at the numbers that thoughtful scholars have looked at. Same thing comes when you come look at the exodus from Egypt. If you look at the literal numbers in terms of, or is it um, used in other ways? So... But the point I want you to notice is that he's a military guy and he has all his army stationed in Jerusalem. All right. So now look at what happens next in chapter 18. Now Jehoshaphat had great riches and honor. Notice the riches and honor piece that introduces the narrative. Okay. And he allied himself by marriage with Ahab. Now, this is our Ahab in the north. We've already mentioned who is worshipping Baal. And um, he's also the king who, remember when there was Naboth's vineyard and he takes the vineyard. And I mean, it's, it's been a mess up in the north. And Jezebel has also killed a number of prophets. And so what is he doing allying himself with Ahab? Not only that, but look what it says next. Some years later, he went to visit Ahab at Samaria. Remember that there are golden calves at Dan and Bethel, and you also have Baal worship. And what did Ahab do? Ahab slaughtered many sheep and oxen for him. 
So Ahab puts on this great big party and celebration for the king coming and for the people who were with him, and he induced him to go up to Ramoth-Gilead. So what's going on here? We start to see that the people group called the Arameans, one of the local people groups, has uh, have been waging war, and Jehoshaphat is going to Ahab, and Ahab says, hey, why don't we join in a coalition against them, and that way we can fight against the Arameans. And uh, we know from the, uh, the Mesha inscription that talks about um, alliances during this time, so it's kind of the political way of operating. So he says, why don't we set up this alliance and we can go out together in battle? Verse 4, and Jehoshaphat says to the king, well, why don't we inquire of the Lord first? And this is a great thing. This is what, remember we've been talking about inquiring. This comes up in, the, in chapter 20. I'm going to pick it up, the, what it means. But he's asking, what is he asking? He's asking that he gets wisdom to know whether to move forward or not from a prophet. And the king of Israel assembled all the prophets. And what has he got? About 400 of them. And they say, should we go out to battle or not against the uh, king? And they say, yes, you need to go up for God will give it into the hand of the king. Just so you know, if you've got 400 people all saying the same thing, you may want to ask a few questions. <laughs> Does Ahab have any real prophets in the north? But Jehoshaphat said, is there not, something's not quite right here. Is there not another prophet of the Lord that we might inquire of him? And Ahab said, oh, I have someone, I know him, but I really don't like what he has to say. <laughs> I hate him, actually. <laughs> because he, he never says anything good to me. And so his name's Micaiah. And so Jehoshaphat said, um, basically, bring him in. So, so what's happening is the two of them are sitting on thrones. And the 400 prophets are all in front of the two kings. And someone goes out to get Micaiah, the prophet. So they go out to get Micaiah. And the guy who goes out to get Micaiah says, hey, I just want you to know, we've all given a positive report. And you better do the same thing. Have you ever been in that situation where everyone's saying one thing and you're like, oh, Lord. <laughs> and Micaiah says, I'm just going to say what the Lord tells me to say. So in the meantime, while he's gone out and he's under pressure, the other 400 prophets start like ramming with horns to show symbolically that Ahab is going to defeat his enemy. Okay, so they're kind of symbolically doing this. And verse 9 says, Now the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, were sitting each on his throne arrayed in their robes. They've got their beautiful kingly robes on expensive materials, no doubt. And they were sitting at the threshing floor at the entrance of the gate of Samaria, and all the prophets were prophesying to them. 
So they tell, they're told they're going to succeed. Verse 12, then the messenger who went to summon Micaiah spoke to him saying, behold, the words of the prophets are very uniformly favorable. So let your word be like one of them. And Micaiah says, what my God says, that I will speak. And so he goes in first and they say, what do you, what do you want to say? what's going to happen? And he says, go up and succeed for they will be given into your hand. And then they said, no, no, give us the real truth. And he said, I saw all Israel scattered on the mountains like sheep which have no shepherd. And the Lord said, these have no master. It is pointing to the death of the king. And then Jehoshaphat, uh, Ahab says to Jehoshaphat, didn't I tell you he doesn't say anything good about me? And then Micaiah has another vision. Hear the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne and all the host of heaven. And now we have the Lord said, who will entice Ahab? And we find out a spirit is coming and I will entice him. So we see that there's a spiritual component that's happening here. Because God, if you look in the northern kingdom and see what's going on, God is bringing judgment against King Ahab. And in fact... So we have these deceiving um, prophets that are going to come forth and Ahab's going to listen to them because it's going to be his demise. And so here's what happens next. Verse 23, Then Zedekiah came near and struck Micaiah on the cheek and said, How did the Spirit of the Lord pass from me to speak to you, recognizing the role of the Spirit? But notice also it's not going very well for the prophet who speaks the word of God. Not only that, but he is going to be put in prison, verse 26, and uh, fed sparingly with bread and water until I return safely. So, so you have the prophet speaking the word of God. Uh, here's a good example of what we've been talking about, that doing the will of God doesn't mean things always go well. Uh, he ends up in prison this would be another good one for the I declare. Doesn't quite fit with I declare a spirit of ease on my life or an anointing of ease because the prophet doesn't get it. So then here's what's interesting. What happens is they go out and Ahab says to Jehoshaphat, oh, by the way, when we go out to battle, you wear the kingly robes, but I'm going to disguise myself. Jehoshaphat says, okay. <laughs> I think he's caught in pride. You know, when you have graduation and you have those academic gowns on and you've got this beautiful, I have a Cambridge gown, it has the hat and it was super expensive to buy. My dad bought it for me for graduation present. Thank you, dad. <laughs> you know, you, I mean, they're beautiful. And you feel a little bit elevated. <laughs> Jehoshaphat's feeling that way as he goes out among the military. But of course what happens is the Arameans see him and think, there's the king of Israel. And you can be guaranteed when he sees them start coming for him, he thinks, what was I thinking that was the most stupidest thing I've ever done in my life? 
And what does he do? He cries out to God for help. Verse 31. He cries out to God for help. And we find out that God diverted them. That language of crying out for help. Remember we've talked about helping. Remember we've talked about the importance of helping. Let me find my crying out to God. It appears in a number of places. Uh, I can't find it right now, but I'll, I'll pick it up. Crying out to God for help. It appears in some of the genealogies. And here, his crying out to God for help is going to shape his leadership in the future. Because the language of crying out to God for help, that, that, that help, God loves that. And so he's precisely in the place where he needs God and he is turning to God for help. And the humility of God is that he doesn't say, well, now you're going to ask me? Now you're in a bit of a bind? Manasseh, oh, now you're in Babylon and now you're going to pray to me? The humility of God is that he loves to answer prayer when people cry out to him for help. And so that's exactly what he's going to do here, and it's going to shape his ministry coming up. And so, in fact, Ahab is going to be killed, and if you read about Ahab in the king's narrative um, and Jezebel, it doesn't go so well for them. Uh, we have the dogs licking up Ahab's blood in the pool where the harlots bathe. Like, it's bad. Jezebel, she remember what happens to her, that um, she gets trampled under a horse and then um, the king goes in to have a meal and then he comes back and just her hand and her skull, she's under, so divine judgment, all of that's going on in the north. But here you have a little window of Jehoshaphat crying out to God for help and he's going to get delivered. So then we have chapter 19 picks up and chapter 19 then you have the prophet comes to speak to him. Chapter 19, what does the prophet say? Jehu, the son of Hanini, the seer, went out to meet him. And we've been talking about this. I cannot tell you how many times in Chronicles that the king is given a word from a prophet, whether it's a word of rebuke or a word of encouragement. Coming up, it's going to be Jehoshaphat encouragement, but also a word of rebuke. And whether the king listens to the word of rebuke or not is decisive in terms of the success of his leadership. God doesn't leave the king on his own. He places counselors around them. We've mentioned this already. King David had a series of counselors. The text names them. These are the people who help counsel him. God gives prophets to the king. He gives priests to the kings to speak the word of God. Um, Uzzah gets a whole lot of priests that speak to him. So, But whether he listens, and then he, he rebukes him. He says, should you help the wicked and love those who hate the Lord and so bring wrath on yourself? And then he says, there's some good in you that you remove the Ashtaroth, you set your heart to seek God. Here we have seeking God again. Okay. 
So Jehoshaphat lived, we don't hear his exact words of response, but we see what happens next to see his repentance. Jehoshaphat, it says, lived in Jerusalem, and verse 4 says, he brought back, look at that, he lived in Jerusalem and went out again among the people from Beersheba to the hill country of Ephraim. Hezekiah is going to do that. And he brought them back to the Lord, the God of their forefathers. So there's, there's humility here. There's restoration. And he appoints judges in verse 5. And judges, again, are living according to the word of God. It's this, the judge is being called and appointed. And he tells them, he said, be fair in your judgment. Establish God's wisdom in when you render judgment. And so this is all very, very positive here. Now, chapter 20. It came about after this that the Moabites and the Ammonites and the Vegemites came up against <laughs> came up against Judah. Here, notice the context. When Rehoboam is faced with Shishak coming against, it is because of God's discipline against him. Here, it comes after his reforms in the same way it's going to happen with King Hezekiah when the Assyrians come against. It says, after great acts of faithfulness. And here's that other piece that we've been talking about, is that the nations rise up against God's anointed and against his people. See that? And I think this is there's both of these going on. And here, they come up, and there is a great multitude in chapter 20, verse 2, that is coming up against him. Verse 3. Jehoshaphat was afraid. I love that. He's a leader who is afraid. And the text says it. There's a humility with that. Now, we don't have fear in terms of a military enemy coming against us. But you can have fear as a leader for all kinds of other things. In terms of fear, there might be certain conflict or fear of people in your church. I bet the president of Gordon College was afraid when he started getting responses after he signed the letter about asking government to affirm his Gordon College with other schools, their faith practices. And when it started turning up in the papers, you don't, do you think he was afraid? You bet he was afraid. Right? Fear can happen when you have someone who starts, says they want to take legal action, ungodliness, right? There's, there's all kinds of things that we can be afraid. It's not military, but he faced fear. And what does it say he do? It, it, he, it says here, he set his face to seek the Lord. Notice that? He set his face. And this is the posture of the face. And we're going to see in a moment, the face is going downward. There's going to be the posture because he's going to fall down before the Lord. He says he set his face to seek the Lord. This is verse 3. 
20 verse 3. Uh, 20 verse 3, he set his face, and here, this verb here, there are two different verbs being used. In verse 3, it is the verb darash, to seek the Lord, and verse 4 is the verb bakash, to seek help from the Lord. There's two different verbs. The first one, darash, which we've been talking about a little bit, is this is when you inquire of the Lord to know what God is doing. To ask what God is doing. For example, Genesis 25 verse 22, Rebecca, when she was pregnant, remember, she's asking, what are you doing, God? And she inquired of the Lord. And in, so it's the idea of seeking God, to seek wisdom from God. And the verb, darash, to inquire, 41 times in Chronicles. Unheard of. It is absolutely central. He is inquiring of the Lord. And I want you to notice what he doesn't do. The king doesn't call up his army. I think it's the most profound thing in the story. Because we find out earlier that he has his military stationed in Jerusalem. Commentary, uh, Japheth commentary says, talks about the fact with Jehoshaphat that the king can be a military guy, but the king needs wisdom to know when to call up the military and when not to call up the military. Because the question is, is the solution military or spiritual? Right? Is it military or spiritual? And I think Jehoshaphat was shaped by his situation that happened with Ahab when he inquired of the Lord, but he didn't listen to the Lord. And in fact, the, the battle that Ahab, that Aramean, that battle... That was spiritual as well, because God was actually bringing judgment against Ahab. That's why it was taking place. So here, not only, not only does he seek the Lord, but it says he proclaimed a fast throughout all Judah. And fasting here underscores how earnest he is about seeking an answer from God. Not only does he... Fast, but he is calling a public fast among the people of God. And I think there are times in leadership, again, I think it's a bit of a lost art, right? So there are both personal fasts and there's corporate fasts. Personal fast is where we can choose to seek God about something and and and. That's where we're not telling everybody. <laughs> we're seeking the Lord about something. God's put something on our heart. But you also see that there's a role for a corporate fast of God where God's people are seeking him for a particular situation or for a particular wisdom that's given. And I mentioned the example of um, 
Barry Corey. If you Google it, you can look on their website at the president of biologists because I, I know him and I know some of the... that they had a season where the, the whole school was fasting for a season. And there's a public component to it when you think of a leader because you don't know what the outcome is, right? There's a faith element because you're asking God to answer in some way, but you don't know if he really is going to answer. And so there's a public... Um, and I think God honors that. You think about way back in um, with Joshua when he had to walk around Jericho, there was a faith element that was a public faith de declaration. We don't know how God's going to answer it, but we're asking him to answer it. And so you have, you have them, and he's using, therefore, his leadership to bring about a spiritual renewal among the people. See that? That's the great gift of it. Um, to seek help from the Lord, and they even came from all the cities of Judah to seek the Lord. So what do we have next? Verse 5, Jehoshaphat stood in the assembly of Judah, and he begins to pray this public declaration, O Lord, the God of our fathers, are you not the God in heavens? Are you not ruler over all the kingdoms of the nations? That kind of prayer turns up with King Hezekiah as well when he's in state of desperation. Power and might are in your hands so that no one can stand against you. And he talks then in verse 8, he talks about uh, the name of God. And then verse 9, he talks, he's running through Second Chronicles 6, the prayer. Should evil come upon us and all that in our distress if we cry out to you? Verse 9, he's picking up Solomon's theology in the prayer and saying, didn't you say if all these things have come upon us and we seek you and we pray, haven't you said that to us, that you will hear and deliver us? That's Solomon's prayer. And now he says, by the way, these Ammonites, Moabites, Vegemites have come against us. Verse 12. Oh, our God, will you not judge them for we are powerless before this great multitude who are coming against us. God loves it when people are powerless and they recognize that he has the power. He loves it. Think of Gideon. He's fight who does this? What kind of God says you have too many in your army to fight against the Midianites? Who does this? We are powerless before this great multitude. How many times in Scripture do God, are God's people faced with circumstances that they cannot resolve themselves? Starts way back in Genesis with God choosing a barren woman to use to multiply his, their seed. They can't do anything about it. They've been trying to have kids all their life. They can't do it. And God says, perfect. That's what I've been looking for. He loves using the powerless and the weak, and we hate being in the position of powerless and weak. We hate it. But it's the posture of the human story because it pushes us to recognize that it's all about God and what he does. Right? I've uh, shared with a little bit about with my story, with my um, own personal story. Those years when I left school, my mum told me, they were, they were brutal years in my life. Brutal years in my life. And I loved school. 
And I, how many years was I saying, God, what, what were you doing all those years? But I look back now and I think, you put me in a position of being powerless so that I would cry out to you for help, which is what I did in my late teens. I, only be, I moved out of home when I was like 16 and there was like major fights at home and everything was going, I was powerless. But I also look now and I think God used all that time in my life so that now when I'm teaching, I will never forget it's all about God. And so God was more concerned with my character than he was with my schooling at that age. And maybe I was a bit tough-headed that he knew I needed a bit of like breaking early on, right? And which I was. And um, God loves it when people cry out to him and say, we don't know what to do, Lord. We're powerless here. Before this great multitude who are coming, we don't, we don't know what to do. I think some of the situations we face in terms of the church, we don't know what to do here. What do we do? Right? We're in seminary. We face it with the whole issue of enrollment. What do we have to do? We've got to say, God, what are you doing? You can work in all the unlikely circumstances. God, what are you doing? We don't know what to do. But our eyes are on you. Notice that Jehoshaphat is leading the people to put their focus on God. A um, number of years ago, I was... Um, just did a devotion for a number of seminary presents, including Mao, the previous... Oh, that's a, What's his? Richard Mao. <laughs> Richard Mao with other, um, uh, a number of other presidents and those in leadership. And, and he said to me, do you think there's a time when a president can say he doesn't know what to do? And I said, yes. I said, but he does know what to do because he's calling God's people to seek the Lord. And I remember when Haddon Robinson, we'd had a turbulent time at Gordon-Conwell. We'd had Jim White, who was president for one year. And during that year, we fasted. <laughs> not that he was a great person. It was, just the, it was not the right fit for the school. He was a good person, great guy, pastor and everything. But it was just, it was a tumultuous time. Haddon Robinson then was appointed as the um, interim president, and he, I remember, I, I can still remember the day because he called the whole community, all the officers were cancelled on his first day, and he brought everyone into the chapel, and everyone thought he was about to tell us what the plan was. And he just said, I need you to pray. That's what I need. You could have heard a pin drop in the place. And he said, so that, that's what we're going to do now. We're going to pray. That's what we did. We didn't hear anything about the vision, the, the plan. Just pray. And here you have Jehoshaphat leading the people. And he says, we don't know what to do, but our eyes are on you. Verse 13, all Judah was standing before the Lord with their infants, their wives, and their children. Think about the pressure on him. All the kids, everyone's responsible here. For all the, they're all looking to him. And guess who shows up? Verse 14, the spirit of the Lord. And the Spirit of the Lord comes upon Jehazel, who is a worship leader. And the Spirit of the Lord comes and says, See, God does not leave us alone. The Spirit of the Lord comes and says, Listen, all Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem and King Jehoshaphat. Thus says the Lord, 
Notice that he says, not only the inhabitants, but you, King Jehoshaphat, I want you to listen. Do not fear or be dismayed because of this great multitude, for the battle is not yours but God's. Verse 17, you don't have to fight. Station yourselves and stand and see what God's going to do on your behalf. What's the song, this is how we fight our battles? Remember that? Right? That's that. This is, this is where it's coming from here. For the Lord is with you. And what did Jehoshaphat do? Verse 18. Jehoshaphat bowed his head with his face to the ground. Here we talked about this last night. Here he does. He hears the word from the Spirit and he's boom, down on the ground. Face to the ground. And who follows? All of, all of Judah and the inhabitants, imagine that. All, the whole group of them, flat down. Who else is there? The Levites from the sons of Kohathites. They stood up to praise the Lord, the God of Israel, with a very loud voice. And then they rose early in the morning and they went out to the wilderness of Tekoa, and they went out and Jehoshaphat stood and he said, Listen to me, O Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem. Put your trust in the Lord your God and you will be established. Put your trust in his prophets. The word for trust here is believe where we get amen. And it's the same language used of Genesis fifteen six when Abraham believed in the Lord. And when the people of Nineveh believed in the Lord. And here he's saying, put your trust in the Lord and you will be established. Put your trust in his prophets. Notice he doesn't say, put your trust in me. Put your trust in the Lord and the trust. That's a good leader that puts people, causes people to put their trust in God. Because the leader is ultimately not the solution, but God. Verse 21, when he had consulted with the people, he appointed those who sang. Verse 21, this when he had consulted, that's actually um, when you seek counsel. Uh, the verb used is to seek counsel here. And Hezekiah is going to do this. When they seek counsel, they decide together what should be to happen next. This is kind of this wisdom theme that's even through here. They consulted with the people and he appointed those who sang to the Lord and who praised him in holy attire with their priestly garments on, Levitical garments. And he said, by the way, the army, the Levites go out with the army. There's Levites who are army leaders as well. If you go and look at the list, because Someone's got to blow the trumpets, right? You've got to have musicians. You have praise when you go out to battle. Give thanks to the Lord for his loving kindness is everlasting. Verse 22, when they began singing and praising the Lord, the Lord set ambushes against the sons of Ammon and the Moabites. We don't know how they are diverted. We'll pick this up when we come to Hezekiah. Same thing, the enemy gets diverted, but we have a record outside the Bible that helps us with that. 
Verse 24, And Judah came to the lookout of the wilderness. They looked toward the multitude, and behold, there were corpses lying on the ground, and no one had escaped. They come back into Jerusalem. Verse 27, Every man of Judah and Jerusalem returned with Jehoshaphat at their head, returning to Jerusalem with joy. For the Lord had made them to rejoice over their enemies. And they came with their musical instruments to the house of God, and the dread of God was on all the kingdoms of the lands. Verse 30, the kingdom of Jehoshaphat was at peace, for God gave him rest on every side. He walked in the way, verse 32, in the way of his father Asa, he did not depart from doing right, the high places. So, Jehoshaphat, we don't obviously have battles today in terms of military, but I think the whole, the, the, the chronicler again is calling us back to look at these stories because the king and the people put their trust in God. And I think that stays the same. That somehow seeking God, discerning what God is doing, and putting our trust in God, that's what he loves. And you see, doesn't the word faith is not mentioned here, except when it says put your trust, it's believing. Really, the hallmark of the people of God. However, every king in the southern kingdom fails in some way. And Jehoshaphat allies himself in verse 35 with Ahaziah, king of Israel. And he acted wickedly in doing so. He allied with him to make ships to go to Tarshish. And Eleazar the prophet spoke out against him and said, because you have allied yourself, the Lord, Lord has destroyed your works. So the ships were broken. Little piece at the end there. That happens with every one of the kings. I think it's underscoring that we haven't yet had our righteous Davidic king on the throne. So great story with Jehoshaphat. Worth pondering and I think it underscores the central role of the leader in terms of the spiritual climate of the people. And that's a theme that also runs through Chronicles. Let me close this in a word of prayer. And then we have a um, four minute, we have any, we're going to do picture then. Let me close this in a word of prayer and then we're doing picture. We'll do questions at the end of the next one. And a beautiful sunny day for pictures. Awesome. All right. Heavenly Father, we thank you for our time this morning. And Father, we thank you that you delight that we put our trust in you. And Lord, we even thank you for the times where we feel completely powerless and we don't know what to do. Lord, we just want to acknowledge that before you. And Lord, I pray that you would use that in each of our lives to draw us to you, to seek you, that we might seek your help. And Lord, that you would show yourself faithful in each of our lives and in our ministries. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.